0: Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Rich and Anna and Caleb, for, the, for reading the word this morning for the songs of oh, the love that sought me, of oh, the blood that bought me, of oh, the grace that brought me to the fold, the wondrous grace, what the privilege to know that grace in our lives. As you know, we are beginning a new series in First John this morning, and we'll be looking at the first four verses. There's a number of brothers who will be sharing over the coming weeks. We thank the Lord for you pray for us, and truly uh, really thankful for the prayers. And it's much appreciated and needed. As we look into this section of Scripture, I'd like to begin with some background, just on the epistle and the, the Apostle John himself. You know, after the fall and destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 by the Romans, uh, history and tradition indicates that Apostle John moved to the city of Ephesus. Most likely that he took Mary, the mother of Jesus, with him. Remember that on the cross, the Lord had entrusted John with... He said, Woman, behold thy son, and son, behold thy mother. And uh, that she was with him, and history tells us that she probably stayed with him till her death. Most likely in Ephesus. The official tomb of Mary is in east-central Jerusalem. But there's also a home in Ephesus where... Proposedly, that was the site where Mary was supposed to have lived with John. There's there's uh, many years back when we were in Ephesus, we were able to visit that home, and there's a lot of things that are claimed about it. But it was most likely that that's where she lived. You know, the Apostle John. We and I never thought about this, but uh, some years, a couple years back, we were at the Cove, the Billy Graham Training Center, with uh, Michael Card for a conference, and the singer, songwriter, pastor, teacher. He uh, was. Looking at the Gospel of John. And he gave very convincing reasons for, he said when the Lord called the Apostle John, he was most likely in his mid teens. Just like you, Caleb, and Micah sitting here this morning. Because he was the only one who died a natural death, and if, you know, he died probably in his 90s or maybe 100 on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, But just, can you think of that? You know, somebody in his mid teens that the Apostle John And that's, and also as he was the Lord's first cousin, earthly cousin. His mother Salome was Mary's sister, Mary the mother of Jesus' sister. So he was like a younger first cousin. And that may be why the Lord had a special fondness for him in a sense. And that John felt the privilege to lean on the Lord's breast and the upper room. And if you think about uh, when they went to the tomb, he easily outran Peter and went to the tomb. He just stooped in, but he didn't go in. he waited for the older disciple to come, and Peter goes in first. And uh, in Ephesus is where he wrote his, uh, the Gospel of John somewhere between 80, 85 and 90, and he wrote the three epistles, first, second and third John somewhere between 80, 90 and 95. And then he was uh, exiled to the Isle of Patmos, as we know. That's where he wrote the book of Revelation again, somewhere between ninety five and 100. And of all the disciples, he was the only one to die a nat- natural death of old age. All the others were put to death. So just a little background. John wrote for the third generation. And now, I say up front, all of Scripture is for all of us, for all generations. All Scripture is God-breathed and given for a teaching and reproof, correction, instruction. But he wrote to an increasingly apostate third generation. I'll explain that in a minute. Peter and Paul, James and Jude, both wrote for the first and second generation of Christians after the church was formed. But by the time uh, John wrote this epistle of first and second, it was almost the third generation after the Lord Jesus uh, And this comes from John Phillips. He writes, uh, For by the third generation, every movement of God needs a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit. And John was writing to this third generation. It was an increasingly apostate third generation. And John Phillips says this, The first generation is motivated by firm conviction. Let me say that again. The first generation is motivated by firm convictions. They've heard the truth, they've grasped the truth, and they've believed in it, and they have a great desire to spread that truth and a passion to do that. And they will dare all and die all, die for the truth. That first century church did exactly that, didn't they? Many of them died for their faith. The second generation inherits these truths with conviction, often softens to a belief. Let me say that again. Second generation inherits these truths, but uh, conviction softens to a belief. The second generation, they believe the truths that they've been taught, they debate them, they defend them, and even disseminate them. But the fire and the passion have gone. Writing to the church at Ephesus says, I have something against you. You have lost your first love. This morning as we sit here, are we more like first, if somebody looked at our lives, are we more like first generation Christians or second generation Christians? The third generation, the belief becomes an opinion. So conviction, belief, opinion. The third generation will trade first generation truth, will dilute it, will change it, will accept counterfeits and make room for error. We are living in a Third generation culture of Christianity, where that conviction has softened to a belief. Belief has become opinion. And today in many, much of mainstream Christianity, it's opinion that's shared and not the word of God. I trust we are not, someone looked at our lives wouldn't say that we are third generation Christians. But that's who the Apostle John is writing to. By the time John wrote, a number of heresies had already crept into the church, and I'll just mention a few. The Ebionites denied the deity of Christ. They said he was a created being. The Docetists denied the humanity of Christ. They thought that he was some kind of phantom who had no corporeal being. And the cerinthians not Corinthians, the Cerinthians denied the union of the two natures of Christ. They claimed that the Christ had descended upon the man Jesus at his baptism and departed from him at the crucifixion. So these were already in play there. Now Gnosticism, which was more, came about more in the second century, had already begun to have its uh, seeds in the church. Well, what were their claims? Some of their claims was, one was that Christ was not fully God. He was only an emanation from God, or in today's terms, probably an avatar from God. They claimed that the material world was intrinsically evil. The Bible does not teach that. That uh, the material world is evil. Yes, there's a curse on ground, but it's not evil in itself. But they claimed that and that only the world of the Spirit was good. And thirdly, they wrongly taught that salvation was only for the enlightened ones. That those who had gained some kind of mystical knowledge or special knowledge, and only those people were saved. Contrast that with what the word of God says. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, John 3.16, believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 10.13 says, in fact, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How does John address these issues? Well, he vehemently and indignantly denies all these heresies. And that's, you begin to see that in these first few verses as we look at. You know, if you had engaged John in conversation about this, or if the, the, uh, ones who denied some of the attributes of Christ, he would say, Jesus wasn't like that at all. I knew him. I knew him well as anyone could know him. He was fully human. He ate. He slept, he grew weary, he cried, he was angry sometimes, he picked up children, but he was also fully God. He healed all diseases, he cast out demons, he healed the blind, he healed the deaf, the mute, he calmed the wind and the waves, he raised the dead. All of that is implicated in his opening statements in this uh, first epistle of John. You know, if, uh, Paul's favorite words were, faith, hope and love. You could say the apostle John's favorite words were light, life, and love. Light, life, and love. And we'll see that in this, in, the, in this episode, and we'll go into that in a minute. But before we do that, I'd like to mention uh, why did John write this episode? You know, in this gospel, he told us why he wrote this gospel. In the 20th chapter of John, he says, Jesus did so many things that if he had to record them, the world wouldn't contain all the books that had to be written. But these things are written that you may know that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing in his name you have eternal life. That was his purpose in writing John's Gospel. But in the epistle, he tells us five different things. Firstly, that we may have fellowship. That's in our section. That we may have fellowship with God and with one another. 1 John 1.3 In the Garden of Eden... God had fellowship with man. He could walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. That fellowship was broken when sin came in. That fellowship has been restored in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I can fellowship with God. We can walk with Him. He walks with us. He talks to us through His Word. He talks to us. Sometimes He talks to us directly through the Holy Spirit. That we may have fellowship. Secondly, that we may have joy. Verse 4. These things are written to you that your joy may be full. That joy comes in Him and Him alone. You know, that joy we can experience even today. After our daughter died earlier this year, it seemed like things were just, there was sadness. Yes, there's still sadness. But that joy no one can take away. The joy that we have in Christ. In Him and Him alone. Third reason, that we may not sin. Chapter 2. In a couple of weeks, Phil will be taking that passage, I think. That we may not sin. It's not saying that we don't sin. We don't live sinless lives. We sin. But even as you see on either side of that section, that we may not sin. 1 John 1-9 says, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then John 2 says, if we have if he, anyone sins, we have an advocate before the Father who represents our case, and he never, never loses a case that we may not sin fourthly, John chapter 2, verse 26 that we may not be deceived there are many false teachers, there's much confusion in Christendom today about the Word. we need to be students of the Word, just like the Bereans were because there's no other place we can go to that we may not be deceived when something comes our way. Are, are we checking it against the word, whether that's true or not? We need to be doing that. And fifthly, that we may know that we have eternal life. We may know that we are saved. First John 5.13 That we may know that we are saved. I mentioned those three words. Light, life, and love. God is light. God is life and God is love and we need all three when we have all three in Christ we can have fellowship with him what are the applications of that well firstly God is light when we trust Jesus as savior we are moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light remember in Luke chapter 2 when Simeon when they brought the child Jesus into the temple and Simeon picks him up and he says he is light to bring revelation to the Gentiles John chapter 8, the Lord himself says, I am the light of the world. And we, we have fellowship with the light, and we are to be a light in this dark world. That's, that's what God says. Don't hide your light under a bushel, but they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven, in Matthew chapter 5 and 6. Secondly, God is life. When we trust Jesus as our Savior, we have eternal life in Christ. We already quoted John 3.16, but John 11.25, to Martha outside Lazarus' tomb, he says, he graced the greatest I am statement, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who lives and believes in me will never die. Eternal life is in Christ alone. I didn't quote that correctly, but sorry about that. But the third attribute is God is love. When we trust Jesus as our Savior, His love is shared abroad in our hearts. Romans five verse five says this and hope make it not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit given unto us. In the upper room the Lord speaking to his disciples, said in John thirteen thirty four, A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you. By this shall men know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. What is the first fruit of the spirit that's mentioned in Galatians 5:22? Fruit of the spirit is love, light, life, and love. All three found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's look at our passage. We already had Caleb read that. I'm not going to read that again, but we'll look at some of those sections again as we go through it. So, the, in, you know, in the Gospel of John, the Apostle John. It's talking about the essential and eternal deity of Christ. That's why he begins with, in the beginning, really, before there was a beginning, God is. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. In the epistle of John, the major emphasis is on the essential humanity of Christ, and him being both fully God and fully man. Can I fully understand that? I don't claim to, but I believe it. That's what he was. We have evidence of it. Uh, down through the centuries, I think some of the conflicts of the church have been to to emphasizing one or the other, sometimes emphasizing the deity of Christ at the expense of his humanity, or emphasizing the humanity of Christ at the expense of his deity. Uh, he is 100% God, 100% man. He was fully God and fully man. His deity and humanity were perfectly balanced. One of the Old Testament examples of that is in the it was mentioned this morning at the Lord's Supper. The veil that was in the tabernacle and the temple was made of finely twined linen dyed red, purple, and blue. Remember that was when the Lord cried, It is finished from top to bottom. The hand of God tore that veil, removing the barrier that was there between the holy place and the holy of holies. So we have access into His presence. The veil represents the Lord Jesus. And three colors, red, it represents his humanity. Remember the Lord is the last Adam. The name Adam literally means red. Son of red earth is the name of Adam. So that represents his humanity. Blue is the color of the heavens. It represents his deity. When you take a paintbrush and mix red and blue paint, what does it become? It becomes purple. The perfect blend of deity and humanity found in the Lord Jesus. Represented even in the colors of the veil that was rent. What about, as we look through the Gospels, what about His deity and humanity? You see that all the time, don't we? Think of the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. The Lord is weary and tired and asks for a drink of water. But then He shows His deity by telling her all about her life. And that's what she goes and tells the village. See, come see this man who told me all about myself. In the boat, in uh, Matthew chapter 8, in Peter's boat, he was tired and he was sleeping. But then they wake him up, and he gets up and calms the wind and the waves. The Deity and humanity. Outside Lazarus' tomb in John chapter 11, there's a verse that reveals his humanity. It used to be a favorite verse for us when we were kids, because you had to memorize the verse. It's John chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus wept. I, I memorized my verse. But then he steps outside Lazarus' tomb, and in a loud voice calls out, Lazarus, come forth deity and humanity now here in uh, John chapter 1 it says that which was from the beginning the beginning here is not necessarily talking about the gospel of John 1 in the beginning before there was a beginning it's, He's talking about the incarnation beginning does not imply a start but a state you know when any other human baby is born it marks the beginning of a new life and an eternal soul When the Lord Jesus was born, it signified something quite different. It marked the coming into this world of a person who had existed from all eternity. Let me say that again. It marked the coming into this world of a person who had existed from all eternity. That's why in Isaiah, when Isaiah gives that prophecy in Isaiah 9.6, he's very specific. He says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The son wasn't born. The son existed from all eternity. The child was born. And John goes on to refute the heresies. This morning of the Lord's Supper, from John chapter 1, the first words that Apostle John heard Jesus speak was, Come and see, come and see. And John, over his lifetime, saw the Lord Jesus. He saw all the things he did. In the verses that we read, there are two words that uh, John uses. Uh, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. There are two different words. The Greek word for seen, seen with our eyes, is the word horeo, which means to see with the physical eyes. I see you this morning sitting here. You see me speaking. That's the physical sight. But then the second word is the Greek word theomai, which means to look upon, to view with attention, to view with admiration, to view with awe. That's the same word that he uses in John 1, 14, and we beheld his glory. So two different words, physical eye, John John saying, I saw him with a physical eye, but I also saw what he was, and I was awed. And John did that, and he, perhaps he was recalling what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, where the Lord revealed his glory, Peter, James, and John. But then he doesn't stop there. He said, that which ye have heard, that which ye have seen, and our hands have handled that's the Greek word which means to feel or to touch let's turn back to Luke chapter 24 this is after the resurrection when the Lord appears to his disciples Luke chapter 24 towards the end of the gospel of Luke and verse 39 the section is Jesus appearing to his disciples Luke 24, 39 and he says behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself handle me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have that which our hands have touched perhaps again John was recalling leaning on the Lord's breast in the upper room that he had touched him and over the years that they were together I'm sure he had touched him many times and that's what John's saying that which we have seen we have looked upon concerning this person I'm talking about the Lord Jesus, the Word of life, the Logos of life. You know, we, our thoughts and our feelings, you can't tell me what I'm thinking or what I'm feeling unless I put it into words and then I speak. And then you hear what I'm thinking about or what I'm feeling. In John 1.18, the Apostle John says, No one has seen God at any time, but this word that was with him in the beginning, has revealed him to us. That's why a few weeks back when we talked about the heart of God, I said the heart of God is never more completely revealed than in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in the incarnation. That is what we, John is talking about. Before we go forward this morning, let me ask this. John heard, John saw, John touched, John's life was changed. Have you heard him? Have you heard his voice calling you? Have you seen him? Have you felt him? Has your life changed because of the Lord Jesus? I trust everyone here this morning is. If not, he can change you today. He can meet you right where you're sitting in your seats this morning. He is calling, earnestly calling, once to himself, one by one, one at a time. Verse 1, verse 2, some transmitted evidence. You know, we said uh, light, life, and love. One other favorite word of John in, in this first epistle is the word manifest, that which is made clear, or to explain, or to make clear. In the Gospel of John, 1 verse 4, John says, In him was life, all life, all life originates with God. And the Lord makes this clear in his greatest I am statement in John 11. He said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he proved that by restoring Lazarus to physical life after he had been dead for four days. In his statement, he goes on to say, He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. That is, he had the power to impart spiritual life to those who believe in him, to those dead in trespasses and sins. And then the last part of Jesus' statement, that I, I am statement, whoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. That is eternal life. And we said that that was John's purpose in writing his gospel, that you might know him and that you have eternal life. And that life that Jesus manifested before his disciples, his family, was a supernatural, eternal life. To the Pharisees who were plotting his death, he said this, Therefore does my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. John 10:17. To Pilate, who told him in uh, John 19, Don't you know that I have the power to kill you? The Lord says, you would have no power unless it was given to you. I have the power to lay down my life and to take it up again. That was the life that's manifested that John is talking about. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So transmitting that evidence, what John saw, he's telling us this is it. This is the person I've been talking about. This is the Lord Jesus. This is God himself. Not any kind of heresy. This is fully God and fully man. And over the course of those three and a half years that uh, John and the other disciples were with the Lord Jesus, he saw it. One who was wholly good and without sin. One who was never unkind. One who was never thoughtless or losing his temper. One who went about doing good. One who never had to apologize for anything. One who was never at a loss. One who was never taken by surprise one who was never wrong, one who was never deceived, one who was never discouraged, one who was never dismayed. That, John says, I'm declaring to you. And then, thinking about the miracles that John saw, he healed the blind, he healed the deaf, he healed the mute, he healed the lame, he healed the lepers, he healed the demon-possessed, he healed the woman with the issue of blood, he healed Simon Peter's mother of fever, he healed the paralytic that was lowered from the roof, he healed the man with the withered hand, he raised the dead he calmed the wind and the waves he had directed a fish to open its mouth the first fish that Peter caught to pay the temple tax with a coin holy God and then he laid down his life on the cross and he rose victorious on the third day over sin and hell and death John saying I'm declaring that to you John transmits this evidence for us to see are we transmitters Are we transmitters? You and I, if you know the Lord Jesus, are we declaring that to others? Uh I've seen the light. I know who gives eternal life. It's this person who's changed my life. It's the Lord Jesus. I trust we're doing that in the ones that we come in contact with. Thirdly, some tested evidence. It's good news. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you may also have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. All of that John has shared so far is good news. What is the that which, the basis of this verse, the beginning of the verse, verse 3? Verses 1 and 2 make clear the basis and the foundation of Christian fellowship is Jesus Christ Himself. Let me say that again. The basis and the foundation of Christian fellowship is Jesus Christ himself. It's not some certain mystical teaching, as the Gnostics claimed. It's not belonging to a certain denomination or a church. It's not undergoing a, undergoing a particular ritual or sacrament. It's not church membership. No, the basis is Jesus Christ himself, him and him alone. Him and him alone with no add-ons. Leighton Ford, Leighton Ford used to be part of the Billy Graham team for a year, number of years, and now I think he has his own ministry called Leighton Ford Ministries. He writes at the time of being in Romania one time, and this, this was while Romania was under communist rule still, before it opened up. And he was there as part of an official delegation to meet with the the official church. And uh He was in the hotel and then he just wanted to walk so he took a walk outside the hotel and you couldn't really go anywhere like that. There were limited areas foreigners could go to and he was walking and he was walking he had a man walk by him and he heard him whistle, whistling and he recognized the tune. The tune was a Christian hymn. It was the hymn, the great physician now is near the sympathizing Jesus and and Leighton was kind of taken aback and he retraced his step and Kind of walked behind the man, listened to him a little more. Yes, he was whistling a Christian tune. Leighton caught up with him and he started whistling the same tune. The man looked at him, stopped. A smile broke out on his face with a question and look. And the man touched his heart, pointed to the heaven, touched his heart again. And he kind of looked questioning and Leighton said, I touch my heart. I pointed to the heaven. And they embraced one another we have fellowship with God and with one another in the Lord Jesus Christ what is Christian fellowship the Greek word is koinonia from which we get the word communion the essence of Christian fellowship is not hanging out together the essence of Christian fellowship is not Christians drinking coffee together the essence of Christian fellowship is not having church lunches or suppers no matter how delicious they may be It's not a Christian golf outing. It's not a clay shooting event. All those things are wonderful and can be part of Christian fellowship. For the essence of Christian fellowship is intimate communion with God the Father and with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. The essence of Christian fellowship is intimate communion. That communion that was broken in the Garden of Eden, you and I, have access into His very presence. You can I can have communion with God the Father and with the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. That is Christian fellowship, and that is wonderful. That is wonderful. That we can have communion with the creator of the universe. Think about that. And we experience that fellowship with one another too the book of Hebrews says do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together you know we have uh, when you're able to there are some who are absolutely not able to be here but when you're able to I hope you want to be in fellowship I'm so thankful for the wonderful fellowship we enjoy here at Northern Hills folks generally care for and support one another And love to be with one another. That's why it's so difficult to get folks back into the sanctuary at Bible are in spite of turning the lights on and off or whatever. People want to fellowship. That's wonderful. But the essence of fellowship is with God and with His Son, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. And if you go back to the early church in Acts 2.42, that's one of the components of uh, the church that is mentioned. There's the apostles teaching, the doctrine. There's the breaking of bread, there's the fellowship, and there's prayer. The joy of Christian fellowship. You know, it's not just John, it's the Apostle Paul also emphasized the importance of fellowship. He began his letter to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians one nine, God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ. And he ended his second epistle to the Corinthians with that wonderful benediction, 2 Corinthians 13.14 the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Are you enjoying fellowship with the Lord? Are you enjoying fellowship with the Lord? Or is there something, something preventing that intimate communion that's preventing that separating you? I grew up in Bombay. It used to be called Bombay. Now it's called Mumbai. Uh, Bombay was the entry point for a lot of people into the country because it was just, you know, everything, airport and ships. And so we had a lot of missionaries come by. I remember I must have been nine or ten at the time. One of the missionaries who came by dropped off a series of books by Patricia Sinjin. It was, uh, one of the books was called Star of Light. And I might have shared this story a long time back. Star of Light was I think it was done at uh, King's Club many years ago they had gone through that. it was set in Morocco it was a Christian nurse who ran a small clinic and she used to uh, have uh, take care of uh, you know a lot of uh, medical issues for her. and there's uh the story is about another family a Muslim family uh the mother had one time been treated at the Kulinka and she remembered the love and the compassion of the nurse. And uh, one of her kids was born blind and uh, she was the second wife of the in the village many miles away from... and uh, the father was going to sell that child to be a to career of professional begging because you could make a lot of money as a blind child begging on the street. And the mother really didn't want that, and so she bundles the baby with this, the older brother, his name was Hamid, and sends him to the clinic. she says, I know if you just leave her, leave leave your sister on the doorstep, that nurse will take care of her, and that's what happens, he he does he he brings her, leaves her on the doorstep, and she takes her in, realizes somebody's dropped this blind baby off, and she begins to care for her, she grows and this, uh, the nurse used to have a gathering each evening for all the street urchins who used to be in that city they would come for a meal and she would give a Christian lesson, they all came for the meal and so Samid would go too and uh, over time the nurse realized that there's some relationship between these two although he would never admit to it and then one day and she became, he became her guide around the city through all the back alleys and everything, one day she was going to visit somebody and she needed help to find the place so she asked me to come with her and and uh, as, he, as she went to get her coat it was raining outside and she went to get her umbrella and he was sitting in, uh, standing in the front room there he saw a bunch of eggs in a basket there he hadn't had an egg in a long time and he really uh, wanted to have one and so he took a few and hid it under his rags and then he, he, he held it together and then she came out she had this big umbrella and a flashlight and they started walking out and he would just be on the edge of the Away from the light, he would not come, and she couldn't understand why he wouldn't come. He wouldn't come and be under the umbrella and in the light and walk. He was walking on the edge of, outside the light, the rim of the light. And then finally, he falls, trips and falls. And he, after he falls, all those eggs break, and all that egg white and yolk is. And she realizes what has happened. He thought that she was going to, uh, you know, hit him or something. And, she takes him home, she cleans him up, gives her fresh clothes. This time they set out to go visit that family. This time he's under the umbrella, this time he's uh, in the light and he goes. I read that as a child of nine or ten and it made such an impression on me. Is there something separating you from walking in the light that prevents you from having close, intimate communion with the Lord Jesus First John nine, if He confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, not just forgive, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And to cleanse us. I trust if there's something that's separating you from walking in close fellowship, in close communion with the Lord, that you give it to Him and ask Him. Whatever it might be, it might be a sin, it might be a bitter heart, it might be a broken relationship, something that you haven't confessed something that you haven't forgiven give it to the lord and he you can walk in fellowship you know there can be no true christian fellowship with call, those who call themselves christian but who deny the full deity of christ or deny his full humanity we can still be friends with them but we cannot have true christian fellowship with them but we can we can have friendship and we can witness to them So good news, and lastly, glad news. You see, John was aware of the dark and dangerous world in which the Christians were living, and today it's no different, is it? We live in a dark and dangerous world. At that time, the church was experiencing horrifying persecution from Rome and was being attacked from within by heretical corruption. The Lord had warned them about this in the upper room in John sixteen thirty three. He says, in this world you will have tribulation. But then he went on to say, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You see, no matter what, how dire or difficult things may be, and this might be hard to realize, no matter how dire or difficult things may be, God is in control. In Matthew chapter 14, and that storm that they had when Jesus came walking on the water. Remember, Peter steps out in faith, but then he takes his eyes off Jesus and looks at the waves, and he begins to sink. I think that day that Peter and John and all the others learned a very valuable lesson, and so should we. The lesson is this. Those things that threaten us, those things that scare us, those things that bring us anxiety, those things that bring us discouragement, I don't know what it is in your life today it might be a health issue it might be being alone it might be a relationship issue it might be a bitter spirit issue it might be a lack of forgiveness issue whatever that is already under God's control are you willing to give up your control and say yes Lord I want to be in fellowship I surrender this to you And that says, um, these things we write to you, that your joy may be full, that your joy may be full. In the upper room, speaking to the disciples, he told them, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and your joy may be full. Here the Apostle John says, these things we are writing to you, that your joy may be full. The psalmist in Psalm 16 says, in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. I can honestly say that joy can't be taken away. That joy cannot be taken away. Regardless of circumstances. Happiness can be. And it's, it's often dependent on circumstances. But there's a difference between the two. That joy is inner. What is the second fruit of the Spirit? That's in Galatians 5.22. Love. Joy. Jesus came so that we might have light, life, and love. Have you received him? Do you know him as your Savior? If not, he's calling you today. And right here, even today, he can be your Savior. And you can have this fellowship and this joy, all of that that the Apostle John is talking about, even today. Scripture tells us that there is rejoicing in heaven over even one who comes to faith. And if you do know the Lord as your Savior, are you living as a first-generation Christian with conviction, with passion, with a desire to serve Him? Or a second-generation Christian? Yes, you have the belief, but the passion and the love of God, I hope it's not as a third-generation Christian where you think all of this is just opinion. Do you have the joy of the Lord in you? Are you enjoying fellowship with the Lord? Are you sure you have eternal life? I hope that it's true in your heart and in your life and that, just like the Apostle John transmitting that, I hope we are showing and sharing that life, that light, and that love with others that we come in contact with. Continue to pray for the ministry from this Wonderful episode in the coming weeks and all those who will be preparing lessons. Let's just close in prayer. Dear God and Father, we do thank you for the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is fully God and fully man, the one who came, came to die, that we might have eternal life. Thank you for the light that we have been translated from the kingdom of of darkness into his light. Thank you that we have eternal life in him, that we can live our lives with an internal perspective. Our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. And that thank you for the love that you've shown us and that love that's shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Help us to show that love and grace and goodness to others, Lord. Pray for each one here. Lord I I do pray that if there is one here who does not know you, that you would the Holy Spirit would work in their hearts this morning and draw them to you. And pray for us, if we know you, that you'd help us to live with conviction, with fellowship, with joy, that there is nothing that separates us from the communion that we have in you. So we ask for your blessing on us. Just be with us as we go from here. Dismiss us with your blessing. We just ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.